agree with Pastor Scott tonight. Let's pray together, let's believe. So Lord, as we're going to get into this word tonight of what to do when the heavens are brassing over, Lord, we just thank you tonight for an open heaven, your glory here. And Lord, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to anoint and empower this time and glorify Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being in our midst. And Father, your eyes of favor shining countenance upon us. And everything's going to be accomplished in and through this time that you will be done. Everything will be said. Lord, we thank you for speaking through me under an anointing that it will go out as living seeds of truth sown into good soil as the Holy Spirit, the winds of your spirit, just carry this, blow this out to the nations, everywhere it needs to get. And that your angels are going to watch over your word and, and make sure. The Bible says your word will not return void, but go forward and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So, Lord, we thank you for hearing and answering the prayers that everything will be said, everything will be accomplished that needs to be tonight. We submit this unto you. We resist the devil. We bind up anything right now in Jesus' name that would try to hinder, distract, resist, or oppress this in any way we commit to be bound and back off in Jesus' name. And, Lord, I thank you for the angel of the Lord just clearing that out and that um, we just stand on the promise, Lord, that as we pray, Everything will be accomplished in and through this that you will to be done. Lord, we believe it. It will get where it needs to and accomplish what it's supposed to. We expect it, and we thank you for it now in Jesus' mighty name. All right, so interestingly enough, last night I happened to go out on my back porch and was looking up and I noticed that the, the moon was kind of getting through. There was some storm clouds that kind of moved in. It was kind of dark. The storm clouds started going overhead, but the moon was kind of penetrating through some of those, and I couldn't help but think about this sermon that I'm preaching. And then today when I was driving in, uh, the skies were really clear and open and pretty, and again, it made me think about this sermon. So this sermon, I'm going to entitle this, What to Do When the Heavens Are Brassing Over. And you'll notice if you, this is like a, an aerial, if you look up in the sky and you see the darkness trying to encroach and form kind of some kind of a, uh, you know, some kind of a black covering overhead and block what God's wanting to do. Um, that's what I believe is trying to go on in this nation like never before. And I know that we have faced that some in Dallas, and I know there's other places that have as well. But what to do when your region is oppressed in the heavens? So in this sermon, let me just say up front, um, I say this with love and respect, but if people have been saved for the first time, they came to know the Lord over the last 15 years, I don't know if you've been taught the ABCs or not. I really don't. There's places out there that don't really teach a lot of things they should. I don't have the time in this sermon to explain everything thoroughly. I'm kind of expecting that people know A, B, and C so that we can talk about D, E, and F tonight. You understand? But sometimes people in today's Christianity in America, they don't know, and it's not their fault. They're just not taught. So I will explain some things, but I'm going to move quickly because I can't dwell there, okay? But how many of you guys know that we are in a spiritual war? And so that's what we're dealing with tonight. I'm going to deal with, uh, start with Ephesians. And again, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to belabor this, but I'm going to start with verse 10, and I think I'll make my point here with just this, but it says, finally, be strong in the Lord 
How many knows that we've got to be in these latter days strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might? See, the Lord will clothe you with strength, and the Holy Spirit can arise within you and strengthen you from within. But we need that strength. And it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. How many knows that every day we need to be putting on the armor of God? Every day. We do not need to have a day where we are like spiritual streakers. Amen? <laughs> Run around naked. We need to have the armor. Now, with all seriousness, this is actually a really sobering message tonight, but I'm going to have to move quickly. But the armor of God is like this in a nutshell. The helmet of salvation is that your mind is really renewed with the word of God, that you know who you are in Christ. You know what the Bible says about you. The enemy cannot shake your mind. And the breastplate of righteousness is over your heart and your emotions, that your heart is calm and undisturbed because you know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Your sins are forgiven by the blood. You don't go based on how you feel. Some days you might have a good day and some days not, but it doesn't matter. There's a breastplate of righteousness over your heart that you know that I am righteous, regardless. You understand? Regardless. The devil may be attacking, but that don't make any difference. I may not feel a certain way, but that doesn't matter. I am still the righteousness of God in Christ, and my heart is settled. The, the belt of truth is that you are established in the faith. You're established in doctrine. You know what the Bible says, and you're strong in that. And your gospel shoes of peace, that you're walking in peace. Hear what I'm saying. We have got to walk in the peace of God. The Bible says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That's kind of a parallel scripture. What that means is, is that we forgive people immediately. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. If you had somebody wrong you, you're not going to go to bed without forgiving them. You're going to have peace in your heart toward people. And you're not going to go to bed without repenting of your sins. You say, Lord, forgive me. And you mean it. You really pray that you walk in peace with God. And you strive to be a peacemaker. I've made up my mind. I am not going to be rebellious. I'm not going to stir up rebellion against leaders. I'm not going to be a gossip. I'm not going to get people mad at each other. Instead, I am going to be a peacemaker between men. And I'm going to strive to be at peace with all men. If, if other people are difficult and they're the ones in the wrong, I'm going to forgive them. But I myself am going to be a peacemaker in that situation. And see, when you walk in the peace of God, you're right with God, and you walk in peace, and you're a peacemaker, how many knows that that's a place that the enemy has a very difficult time causing problems for you? You're walking in peace. And we have our shield of faith up, that we have faith in what God says. We have faith in the blood. We have faith in the name of Jesus. We have faith in what the Bible says. And therefore, we bring ourselves and our families under a shield of faith that quenches those fiery darts of the enemy. You see, that faith has got to be up. And we have the sword, which is offensive. The enemy may try to slither in, and here you are under the armor, and you notice as you're walking in peace that something's trying to slither in and cause strife in your home. And you discern it's a spirit of strife. 
And so you have your armor on and you begin to open your mouth and now you're going to use your sword. And you're going to say out loud, I bind you spirit of strife. I bind you in the name of Jesus. You're not going to cause any more problems out of this home in Jesus' name. And you release, for it is written that we submit unto God, resist the devil, he must flee. And as you release your authority with the word of God, you drive the enemy out and you keep him out. This is not a time that we're unarmed. This is a time that we are being fully armed and we're using the weapons of our warfare, which are not carnal, meaning they're not fleshly. You understand, you can't fight demonic forces with an actual physical gun. You have to use weapons that that work in that realm, okay? And the weapons that work are the word of God, the name of Jesus, you understand? And so those weapons will rout the enemy, prayer. And so as we get into this, let me keep reading. For our struggle, verse 12, is not against flesh and blood. We think it is. You think, my God, that president. You think, my Lord, my governor. You think, man, the boss at work. But let me tell you that really, truthfully, your, wep- your uh, warfare is not really with flesh and blood. Your warfare really is against this. But it is against, verse 12, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and against spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In heavenly places. So the enemy is trying to create things in heavenly realms. Have you considered that maybe some things that are not a threat to the devil that they seem to flourish, but have you noticed that things that are a threat to the devil seem to have severe opposition? Have you thought about that? See, a lot of times we want to have something, we want to, you know, buy land and build and do things for the kingdom of God, and it seems like, man, it's just virtually impossible. I mean, just something is resisting. It seems so difficult. But you have to understand the battle. So I'm going to explain some things briefly. So as I'm talking about, I can't dwell on this tonight. I I expect everybody's going to know some basics. So let me just move quickly. But when Adam and Eve fell, Adam was given authority over the earth. He was like a king, and he was to reign over this sphere of the earth. Up in the heavens where the birds fly, on the earth, down into the ocean, he had authority over the earth. But whenever he um, disobeyed God and he obeyed the devil, here's what happens. You become a slave to the one you obey. He basically gave the devil on a silver platter his authority over the earth. And that's why the Bible calls, Jesus called him, what the, the prince of this world comes, but he has nothing in me. The Bible refers to him as the little God, the little G God of this world. When Satan appeared to Jesus and took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give you all these if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus never disputed that the devil could do that, but he simply stuck with God and was faithful. And he said, it is written, you will not worship, you will worship the Lord your God only. Okay, he quoted the scriptures, but he never debated that point with the devil because he knew that Adam gave that to the devil. But how many knows Jesus is the last Adam? And when he died on the cross as a sinless lamb, he went down into the underworld and he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He raised from the dead to the highest place 
far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and he has given the victory, okay? But Satan still has Adam's lease. Whenever this lease runs out, and it will, I believe it's not far off, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to bind the devil and throw him down, and he's going to reign from Jerusalem, the throne of David from Jerusalem. He's going to reign with an iron scepter, the nations of the world for a thousand years, and make the way for the Father to come eventually. But here's the thing. Satan right now has some kind of a dominion that was given to him by Adam. But Jesus, the the death and resurrection of the cross, Jesus has given us in him, okay, an authority over the devil and a protection. So we have that, but you have to understand this point is what I'm trying to make. We live behind enemy lines. We are foreigners in this world. Satan has a structure Once he took Adam's authority, he began right then to build his kingdom. And he has placed fallen angels over geographic regions of the earth, over nations, over cities. And see, just like how many of you guys have ever played Monopoly before? This is a good example because most people have. How many knows whenever you're playing Monopoly and you go through and you land on somebody else's property, you've got to pay, buddy? Okay, here's the thing. Whenever we're trying to maneuver and do things for the Lord, but whenever we try to go and take land, the enemy is basically saying, you're trying to take land from me, and I'm going to try to make you pay. You see what I'm saying? It's a battle to take ground because we're behind enemy lines. And have you ever considered that maybe the battle isn't with certain things horizontally, but the battle is more in the second heaven? You know, we think to ourselves, well, why won't this over here, why won't this harvest field open? Why can't we get in here? Why can't we do this for the kingdom? Why is it continually frustrated? Have you considered, instead of keep trying to pry a door open horizontally, have you considered maybe your prayers breaking something in the heavens that will open that up? The Apostle Paul made it clear that he he said this for a reason. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Why? Because it seems like we are. You know, people think, man, why won't this work out? Why won't this open? Why won't this happen? It's probably because it's locked in the heavens. And that's why the Bible says that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. There's something about what is going on because of prayer in the heavens where Satan is trying to set up his kingdom, there's something about it shifting there that will cause a shift in the earth because he has Adam's authority and he's trying to use it against God's people. We need to look at things different. We need to understand the battle. And I believe also, Brother Holt and I were talking about this, that, you know, under Obama's administration, this was really bad, but I see it again that Satan is trying to bring things into our nation, spiritually speaking, from other countries. And you have people that, we love everybody, this this is just a statement of fact, but people that do not come from a Judeo-Christian heritage at all. Their mindset, the paganism, 
the, the witchcraft, the occult, things from other countries. And, and it was really bizarre because we just had this conversation, and then Israel's having to deal with Hamas. And I just saw in the 700 Club, they had a news clip. And in New York City, you had these people that looked like, you know, Palestinians, Palestinians right, that were attacking the Jewish people. And I thought, my God, it looks just like it does in the Middle East in New York right now. And it looked like it. I was thinking, you know, so there's spiritual things that are trying to come into our nation from other places. And so there's, there's a spiritual principle here I want to lay out for you. When Satan took Adam's authority, he began to set up a rebel kingdom, a rebel kingdom in the second heaven. God dwells in the third heaven. That's where his throne is. When you die, that's where your spirit goes is to the third heaven. Or if you're a heathen, it goes down under the earth in the hell. But there's a heaven, a second heaven. You notice in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, heavens really is plural. Shamaim, the im is plural. But the earth, the aretz, is, is singular. So there is a plural heavens. The second heaven is where Satan has his principalities and powers. So principality comes from the Greek word arche, where we get the word architect, a principality that Satan has placed. There is actually an intelligent, powerful fallen angel that has a throne over, whether it's a nation or a city or some kind of geography, they have a throne over that. And like an architect, if you will, they're blueprinting their territory and they're strategizing, they study and they strategize against the people of God. What am I up against? And what they do is they strategize how to render ineffective God's people. And then once they come up with a, a strategy of attack, they will send in the powers. And these power spirits descend and they begin to try to create that scenario. And so the battleground is in the heavens. And there's this principle laid out in God's word that I don't know if is, is really explained a lot, but in Deuteronomy 28, 12, this is a blessing for obedience. Everybody say obedience. So when we live obedient to God's word, the, the Bible says this. It says the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens. The heavens. Everybody say, open heaven. And it says this, to send rain on your land in season and bless the works of your hands. So when things are right with God, the heavens are open. There's a downpour of rain and there's fruitfulness. God blesses the works of your hands. But look at the counterpart to that. For disobedience to God. It says, if you disobey the Lord... He said in Deuteronomy 28, verse 23, the heavens over your head will be bronze. The earth that is beneath you will be iron. And the Lord will make the rain on your land powder and dust. From heaven, it will come down on you until you're destroyed. So the Lord will make the heavens bronze. The earth beneath you iron. How would you like to plow a field of iron? 
The rain that's supposed to nourish the ground is powder and dust. That's the sign of a curse. When things are locked up in the heavens, and because of that, there's no rain and the earth is not fruitful. And I'm speaking spiritually. God's wanting an open heaven. He's wanting to send revival. He's wanting to pour out his spirit, and he's wanting the harvest to yield. But when things are not right, there's sin, there's disobedience. The enemy sets up that rebel kingdom. See, in America, we have this long history of your Judeo-Christian heritage, and there's a lot of places that historically have seen great revivals. And we know that there's been open heavens, but I see as we're moving into these latter days, more and more sin, more and more disobedience. You're seeing more and more idolatry in, in different cities. There's, there's different things coming from other nations. There'll be Buddhist temples. There'll be Hindu temples. There's Muslim mosques. Y'all hearing me? In places now, there's more and more witchcraft. There's more and more Satanism, and they're doing their ritualistic activity under the cover of night. It's clandestine. It's something that people don't know about because there's obviously things going on in the way of murder many times. But there's these things going on, and what's happening is where the heavens used to be open, now you're sensing it. And those that are intercessors that understand these things and are discerning, you're sensing the skies above are beginning. It's like storm clouds coming in. There's a darkness. And where it used to be easy to pray, it used to be easy to worship, and churches could have in speakers, and they would be powerful extended revivals and things like that. You don't see that like you used to. Something is moving overhead and trying to brass the heavens. And I'm going to tell you how to get those, those heavens back open before we're done. But I want you to understand what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with flesh and blood. Get your eyes off of just politics and things like that. That's, that's such a distraction to a lot of prayer warriors. Get your eyes on the principalities behind it. That's the reason that it's like it is. You're trying to wrestle flesh and blood by posting all your stuff on Facebook, all this other stuff. Let me tell you something in love. All your complaining isn't going to do hardly anything. But if you'll begin to learn how to really, truly pray, I promise you that's going to do something. But look at Jesus in John 151, with that in mind now that you understand this principle. Jesus called to Nathanael. And uh, one of the disciples went and got Nathanael and, and brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, uh, here's one in whom there's no guile, and Nathaniel never met Jesus, said, well, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before you, you were called here, I saw you under the fig tree. And he said, well, surely you're the son of God. And Jesus said, you think, I'm paraphrasing, you think I'm the son of God because I saw a, a vision of you under the fig tree at a word of knowledge. He said, buddy, you're going to see a lot more than that. And here's what Jesus said. He said, truly I say to you, you're going to see heaven open. Everybody say open heaven and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wow. Do you remember when Jacob stumbled upon in Bethel? He named the place Bethel, Beit El, house of God. He named it that, but what 
Jacob didn't know is that his grandfather Abraham had been in that area and built an altar and prayed. And what Jacob didn't know is that because his grandfather built that altar and shed holy blood there and worshiped God and prayed, it opened the heavens there. And Jacob, in flight, you know, he's going to have to go to Haran and all of that. Esau was wanting to kill him. And, and Jacob lays his head on, on a rock, and he's trying to sleep. And how many knows when you're sleeping with a rock as a pillow, you're going to be dreaming dreams, right? And so Jacob's there, and he's, all of a sudden, what does he see? He wakes up and has this vision or dream or whatever in the night, and he saw a ladder ascending, and he saw angels ascending and descending. What Jacob didn't realize, I want you to please catch this principle, is when Abraham was there before and built that altar and applied holy blood, and he prayed and worshiped, it opened the heavens there. Angels were ascending and descending, and Jacob by providence, he didn't intentionally do it, ended up right in that place. And angels were ascending and descending, and he saw it. There's something about that. There's places I've been where God once visited that you still feel in open heaven. You still sense something. There's a residue. But why is it that Jesus had an open heaven over him? Number one, Y'all, please follow me tonight. Give me your best ear because I'm going somewhere tonight. Why did Jesus have an open heaven? Why did he carry an open heaven, so to speak, everywhere he went? Number one, because he was fully obedient. Remember John chapter 5, 19 through 20? I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus basically said, I don't just do whatever I want to do. I'm obedient to the Father. Whatever I see the Father doing, I do that, not something else. Whatever I hear the Father speaking, I say to you. He's, I'm paraphrasing here, but hear my heart. He's saying, listen to me. I am under authority. I don't just act on my own. Whatever the Father wants me to do, I'm obedient to do that. And how many knows that Jesus was obedient? He even said things the Father was telling him to say when they, he knew good and well they were going to try to kill him for it. Number two, Jesus was sinless. You can't live in unrepentant sin and have an open heaven. Jesus had an open heaven over his life because he was sinless. This open heaven, it's kind of a, a little bit of a mystery, but I want you to think about it for a minute. How big is that open heaven over us individually if you're living for the Lord and you're living obedient and righteous and all that. How big is that open heaven? And when we go places, how does that open heaven affect the places we go? I believe also that open heaven is going to be the connection between when it's the time for the shofar to blast and the shout of the archangel, that the dead in Christ will rise first and those that are alive will be suddenly caught up with the Lord, you're going to shoot up through that open heaven over your head. You ever thought about that? <clears throat> Number three, why was there an open heaven over Jesus? Because he was a man of prayer. In fact, Jesus was such a powerful prayer warrior. 
In Mark 135, you know, this was the custom. Jesus got up early and went and prayed. We know there were times that he fasted, and the disciples like, Jesus, you need to eat. And he said, I have food you don't know of, you know. And, and Jesus would go off and pray all night sometimes before making weighty decisions. But Jesus was such a man of prayer. It's interesting that the disciples saw his life of prayer, and they never said to Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to raise the dead. Jesus, teach us how to heal the sick. Teach us, how did you drive out that demon? They never said that, but they did say, Lord, teach us how to pray. Why? Because they knew that that was the reason Jesus was seeing the miraculous through his life. Amen? So us, if we want to live under an open heaven as an individual and as a church, there has to be obedience to God. We're living obedient to his word. Number two, there needs, there needs to be sinless. There needs to be a righteous life. We're doing what we're supposed to do, and we're not doing what we're not supposed to do, okay? And we need to have strong prayer. Let me tell you something. I know you know this, and you hear me say it a lot, but a praying Christian is a powerful Christian. But a prayerless Christian is weak. A praying church is a powerful church. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, I've called my house to be a house of discipleship. These are good things, but Jesus didn't say, I've called my house to be a house of evangelism. But what did he say? My house will be what? A house of prayer. Because it's out of prayer that everything else will take place. You'll have effectiveness in your soul winning. You'll have effectiveness in your discipleship. You'll have powerful electric worship. You'll have an effective altar ministry. But it comes out of prayer. A praying church is a powerful church. And I'm going to tell you what we need, guys. Please hear me tonight. Praying Christians and praying churches, the power of your prayer has pierced holes in the sky and is literally pushing back the tides of darkness, opening things up, not only for you, but for your city and your region. It is clearing the heavens so that the purposes of God can go forth. And I'm concerned because from what everybody that I know is telling me, I'm talking, I've heard this a lot, People come through here in River of Life, and, and they, they, I've heard this so many times. They, they say to me, Brother Scott, you know, we, we've gone all over this nation, and, and we've traveled all over different states and different types of churches, and, and they said, Brother, we don't hear this type of prayer and intercession anywhere. Here's what concerns me, and I hope people hear this, people that are young in the Lord that have been saved maybe over the last 15, 20 years, and and um, you don't know this because you, you didn't grow up maybe in Pentecost or whatever. But when God birthed Pentecost at Azusa Street, fresh, in these latter days, I mean, there was powerful praying and worshiping in the Spirit, but there was a deep understanding about getting past your flesh and getting in the Spirit and praying in the Spirit, praying in the Holy Ghost. There was an understanding of that. And there was an understanding of getting even beyond just tongues and the deep groan. The Bible says in Romans 8 
It says, groanings too deep for words. They understood that. And they understood that groan. The apostle Paul talked about, I'm again in the pains of childbirth till Christ be formed in you. There's something about true apostolic ministries like Paul that are going to take ground and see a harvest of souls that there's got to be some kind of a groan in their ministry. The intercessors understand that. But here's what's concerning to me is that I'm hearing more and more that you don't see it, you don't hear it in this nation. Is it little wonder then why the skies are getting darker and darker over this nation? I'm telling you it's connected because there was past generations that knew how to really pray. I'm not talking about coming together and sipping a latte and and, and eating something and just saying, okay, you know, we're going to pray. And people get their little prayer requests and they say some little prayer out of their head. I'm talking about people that understand skipping some meals and coming together and they're focused on prayer. And prayer meetings are not this joke embarrassment of it being a little gossip fest. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? We need to pray because, you know, she's been running around doing that. That's a bunch of garbage right there. Instead of praying and it being effective, you're in sin and you're causing problems. And see, that's been lost. And I'm going to tell you something with the decline of powerful, deep intercession by people that know what they're doing as that precious generation is dying off What are you seeing? You're seeing a thick darkness begin to come up in the heavens over this nation. And things this nation would have never accepted decades ago, now they're accepting. You understand that there's principalities and there's powers. You and I both know when we were younger that things like transgender would have never been accepted by the nation. Even the lost people wouldn't have accepted it. You know it. What has changed? the thick darkness in the heavens that's deluding people. See, we're dealing with end-time deceptions. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians, because people did not love the truth, God gave them over to a delusion. Romans chapter 1, because of their sin, eventually they were given over to a reprobate mind. The Bible says in the latter days, there'd be great deception. What's happening is, is that people are now accepting things that society, even lost people, would have never accepted in past generations. They're being given over to like a reprobate thing, a deception. And unless there's a group of people, and thank God that God led this sermon on the other side of paying the price for revival, because this will make sense to you guys, But unless there's a group of people that understand how to pray and to groan and travail to the degree that they can really break the heavens open and get through to that third heaven and cause that God himself is going to hear and he's going to begin to move, unless there's people that know how to pray, this nation is going to keep down that dark course. But I'm going to tell you, once people that know how to pray really begin to pray, It can turn the tide, and it doesn't take a lot of people. Historically, it's been a small number of people, but they would get a breakthrough with a handful of people that a power of God would break loose where they were at, that by the time it was done, it affected millions of people. It's not going to take a whole lot of people, and I'm going to show you that. Not only I did the paying the price for revival, so I showed you through history, but I'm going to show you in the Scriptures. It doesn't take a whole lot of people. 
But if people will come together that are serious about it, they're serious, they're focused, they understand the seriousness of the times, and they're going to come together and really devote themselves to prayer, that can break something open for a nation. I'm convinced from both the scriptures and from history, revival history, I'm convinced that around a dozen people can have powerful prayer and intercession to such a degree that God can use them that they can get such a breakthrough that it can shift the heavens over a nation. It can shift the heavens over Washington. A power of God can break loose with them that by the time it's worked its way through this nation, millions of people can be saved, and you'll never be able to convince me otherwise. But there's got to be a group of people that are serious with God, that are willing to pay the price in prayer to see it happen. It's almost like a desperation. Isaiah 58 talks about the power of prayer and fasting and giving to the poor and repenting of your sins. Joel chapter 2 talks about it, calling a solemn assembly that people come together and they're in deep prayer and fasting and repentance of their sin. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and what? Turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and what? Heal their land. Over and over we see it in scripture and I'm not gonna dwell on this because those that follow our ministry, you're familiar with this, but <coughs> excuse me. As we humble ourselves in prayer and fasting and we live a lifestyle of giving, and we're deeply consecrating our lives. Those five things carry tremendous power. And what you can see if you put together Isaiah 58, Joel 2, and 2 Chronicles 7, 14, and other places, you can see that God will begin to hear your prayers and drive away the enemy. In Joel 2, the enemy was described like locusts coming in on Israel. And God described them that way because the enemy was destroying their crops and was, being, was terrorizing them. But God said, if you'll call a solemn assembly and you'll humble yourself in prayer and fasting and repent before me, he said, I myself will step in and I will drive away the northern army. And let me tell you something. Here we are seeing this stuff, trying to collaborate in the heavens where it used to be easy to pray, easy to worship, you could, God, you could get through in your prayers, and, and angels were ascending and descending. Now, it seems like something's trying to brass the heavens, but God says, look, if you'll humble yourself in prayer and fasting, and you'll repent before me, he says, I can step in, and I can begin to roll back those tides of darkness. And then it says, after that, he said, I'll release to you the grain and the new wine and the oil. You know what that is? Fruitfulness that the, the ground, again, is not iron anymore. Now the ground is producing the fruit and the harvest it's supposed to. He said, I'll give you the former and the latter rains, meaning it will pour out again. The rain will come again. The open heaven. I'll open the heavens. I'll send my rain on your land and season. I'll bless the works of your hands. And it talks about, of course, in Joel 2, Acts 2, the, the famous scriptures about, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And not only that, but let me add this addendum because it's not really a part of this sermon per se. 
But God not only will do that, but he says to you and I, if we will be of those that will humble ourselves in prayer and fasting and giving and consecrate our lives, and we'll really press in like that, he said, I'll even restore to you the years the locusts have eaten from you. I'm saying that for your sake. You need to ask God, restore everything that the, year, the years the devil has stolen things from me. Lord, let it all be restored. Not only will God open the heavens and send his rain again, not only will the ground produce its fruit, but God will say, okay, how about the backlog for the last 10 years when the heavens were brass? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll cause all of that to come to you as well. Then Isaiah 58 says, not only will God restore the years the locusts have eaten to us, but God says, I will use you, prayer warriors, intercessors, churches that'll pray, I'll use you to rebuild the ancient ruins. The altars that Jezebel tore down, you will be among those that will rebuild those altars of prayer again. The foundational things the devil has damaged and stolen, foundational truths, I'll use you to restore those truths back. The, the ruins that the devil tore down, he said, I'll use you to rebuild ancient ruins and repair the breach and restore streets to dwell in. But it's going to take prayer warriors. I'm preaching this way, River of Life, because some won't believe this until it happens. But trust your pastor. God's about to move in a significant way. And there's a harvest about to yield. And I believe it'll be as such for river of life that the nets are going to almost break. But God's going to send his angels to help us out with that. Amen. James 5.16, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, says the earnest, and this is the Amplified Classic, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. I want you to remember that scripture because as I close this sermon later, excuse me, I'm going to talk about the prophet Daniel, and I'm going to talk about his prayers, the prayers of a righteous man that shifted nations. Y'all hearing me? But I want to share with you about Matthew chapter 18. If you read Matthew chapter 18 in context, Jesus is dealing with church problems. And he gave an example of somebody offend you if there's a problem, go to them, try to win them over. If they won't listen, take witnesses. Eventually, you'd have to take it before the church and excommunicate them if they won't repent. But he's dealing with church problems. And it's a, it's a connection to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you remember where the apostle Paul said, and I'm going to read you um, a scripture here that will explain this, but Paul said, when you're together and you're, uh, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is there, the Lord is in your midst, and I'm with you in spirit, then hand that person over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh. But it'll make more sense here in a moment. So you're dealing with church problems. But in Matthew 18, 19, Jesus is trying to show you behind the scenes, what a lot of times is causing church problems. It's spiritual warfare. Amen? And the Lord says, let me give you the remedy for spiritual warfare. Here you go. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it will be done. So the Lord is saying, why don't you take it to prayer? 
If you're dealing with problems in the church, pray. But here's the important thing about this scripture. I want people to really get this. If to agree, I looked that up in the Greek, and to agree there is symphonio in the Greek. And it's where we get the word symphony from, and it means like to harmonize. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a musician, and so I understand this, and I, hopefully other people will as well. <clears throat> but if you go to a symphony, there's somebody up there that's going to be a conductor. And you got one person over here playing a cello and another person playing a trumpet. And you got another person playing the drums. And, but see, all of it, when it's brought together correctly, it creates a beautiful sound. But if you have instruments that are out of tune, if you have um, people playing wrong pieces, the drums are out of step, whatever, it can sound horrendous and make people want to cover their ears. So the point is that the conductor is the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to come together, and look at this second scripture in verse 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst. Now, that, trust me, that does not mean sitting around Starbucks drinking a coffee talking about the Lord. That's not what that's talking about at all. What that is saying is where people in the Greek, it's the word sunago, and it means drawn together or led together. How are we led? By the Spirit. So what it's saying there is this. Please get this. It's saying when the Holy Spirit draws people together in my name. I'm in your midst. And whenever you, by the Spirit, begin to have powerful praise and worship and prayer and intercession, one person may be singing, another person may be praying in the Spirit, another may be in groaning a travail, but it is orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. It's like a symphony that's going up of an incense before the throne of God. And he says, whatever you ask me, I will do it. You got to put that in context. You have to be a group of people. The Holy Spirit is drawn together, usually small in number. God says, if you will gather together, if you're drawn together in my name, the Lord says, I will be in your midst. Then, as the Holy Spirit orchestrates worship and prayer, it will go up before me, and he says, I will do whatever you ask. That right there, what I just described, is the type of prayers that break the brass heavens open and changes things for nations. And I say this in love, but here we are in the last days. We might as well just tell it like it is. You've got so much worldliness in a lot of places and so much carnality, and so many wheat or tares mixed among the wheat, this will never happen there, ever. It's impossible. God, but God can find a group of people that he can draw together, and those intercessors, those prayer warriors, those worshipers can yield themselves to the Holy Spirit. I can't help but think about things as I'm talking about this, like the seven to ten men in a barn in Barvis and the Hebrides that began to gather together, few in number, but they were led there by the Holy Spirit. 
And they were in harmony together as they began to really pray and cry out to God for revival. And Duncan Campbell talked about it and said a power broke loose in that barn in Barvis. That by the time that power had worked through the island of Lewis, the whole island was shaken by the power of God. Why? Because they met the criteria. They were drawn together by the Spirit, and there was that symphonio, that was that sound together in harmony and unity that the Lord says, whatever they ask, I will do. But we have to meet God's conditions. This isn't praying in the flesh. Nobody likes the flesh. You hear the flesh, and you want them to shut up. Amen? And secondly, we're not talking about praying out of the human soul. Your human intellect and your human emotions will only go so far. And how many knows that as smart as we think we are, we only know a little bit compared to God? Amen? So we can only pray so far. We can pray scriptures and in that realm of the soul, but we've got to learn in this generation what our, in, our spiritual ancestors of Pentecost and the power of God understood. We've got to understand to get in the spirit. The apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos, and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And in that condition, God gave him the book of Revelation. So we've got to learn how to get past our flesh, past our own human soul, and we've got to learn to get in the spirit and yield to the Holy Ghost, that God can use us in a type of prayer that will break open the brass heavens. And again, I can't help but think about Edward Miller in the stories I read to you in the late 40s. The heavens were brass over Argentina. He said it was like a missionary's uh, a graveyard. He said that it was so difficult. They weren't seeing anybody saved. They were just going through the motions. And out of desperation, he was asking the Lord, why, you know, he said, I had to get to a place. I was reading Cry From Me, Argentina. And he said, I have to get to a place where I asked the Lord, Lord, I've got to quit blaming everybody else and blaming the devil. Why am I not seeing things? in the book of Acts. And the Lord responded to him by saying, I want you to quit going out and giving out the pamphlets and talking to people, and I want you to devote eight hours a day in prayer to me. You will pray from nine to five just like a job. And Edward Miller began to understand it was because of prayerlessness that created powerlessness. And he had to press in eight hours a day for a while until he got his breakthrough. Then God told him, now I want you to get a few other people with you and tell them if they're, they're not going to pray all the way to midnight to not even show up. And he thought, dear God, nobody's going to come. But you know what God was doing? He was separating out those that weren't serious about prayer. That's what he was doing. And God wanted, what, listen to what I'm saying. I'm trying to show you these scriptures God was saying to Edward, let me draw together the right ones by my spirit. And there I will be in their midst. And then as they harmonize together, I will do what they ask. And so he, he said it, and there's only three other people. But Edward Miller said night after night it was dry and just a simple act of obedience. A young lady felt led to strike the table, wouldn't do it because she felt so stupid. But finally she did it. 
And he said, listen to what Edward Miller said. He said, something shifted in the heavens over Argentina that day. And because in City Bell and in that region, something broke, or y'all hear what I'm saying? Something broke in the heavens. Then Edward Miller was able to start seeing the Holy Spirit move in some of the local churches. Then, because of that breakthrough, people started getting saved. And he was able to start a Bible school. And y'all know the rest of the story. The Holy Spirit fell in the Bible school, and they prayed and all that, and then revival to the nation. But the point is, they had to find a small group of people that would pray until something broke in the heavens. Satan had brassed those heavens over. But God found a group that knew how to pry them back open. The last couple things I want to say is this, River of Life. We need to be serious right now. We're living in perilous times. I know you know this. We're living in times that the Bible talked about in these last days where there would be a lot of darkness. And I'm just telling you as a pastor, I felt to tell you this in this sermon. But this is a time to really be underneath a strong spiritual covering. A covering that really prays for you. I thank God because I really sought the Lord after, you know, Brother Steve took sick and that whole thing. I had to ask the Lord, what am I supposed to do about a spiritual covering? And I feel like God has blessed me with the absolute best spiritual covering. Brother John Davis and and Doug Holt, and I'm going to tell you, that they're prayer warriors and they really pray for us, but you need a covering that prays for you. Number two, I encourage you, River of Life, you know we need to take communion on a daily basis because of these last days. Bring your life and your family under the blood as I've taught everybody and quote the scriptures out loud. Speak the word of God over you and your family. As you take that covenant meal, Claim those covenant promises for you and your family. Bring your health, bring your finances, bring your relationships, and bring what you own under the blood. And quote the word over it. Number three, we need to keep the armor of God on daily. Number four, pray in the spirit on all occasions. If you read Ephesians 6, it gives the list of the armor But the seventh piece that nobody talks about is praying in the Spirit on all occasions. I'm telling you, praying in the Holy Ghost is one of the most powerful weapons and is something that is so valuable. As we pray in the Spirit daily, and I encourage people to set aside time that you really pray in tongues, pray in the Spirit, and ask the Lord to pray through you. As you do that, you are strengthening and developing your inner man. You're sharpening, you're fine-tuning and sharpening your discernment. You're getting revelation from the Lord even though you don't realize it at the time. The Bible says you utter mysteries. You're getting revelation. And not only that, but you're praying the perfect will of God. And praying in the Spirit is awesome, awesome, powerful. And just consider this as maybe something those that have time to really pray Maybe at first, as you enter into your prayer time, maybe spend some time asking the Lord, as you come through Jesus' name and his blood, 
okay? Just worship and thank him, but begin to pray in tongues for a little while. And let the Lord develop and strengthen your inner man and tune you into him and sharpen you. And then move into your regular prayer time. Your kingdom come, your will be done, all of that. And, and cover your regular prayer time. And God may move some of you intercessors during your own prayer time. He may move you into some deep intercession and groaning for a time too. But this is the time to go deep in prayer. The deeper we go in prayer, the more that we're hid with God in Christ, the more that we're secret place dwellers, excuse me, the more that we're going to abide under the shadow of his wings. And finally, River of Life, we have this watchman ministry where we're praying for one another. The Bible says to bear one another's burdens. We need to really cover each other in prayer. And I believe if you'll do that, stay under a strong covering, take communion and speak the word daily, be under the armor, pray in the spirit, and keep your watchman post strong. I believe God is creating like a protection around us for these last days. But these are the last, the last thing I want to cover is about the prophet Daniel, but I want you to see something here. God's throne of grace for us is also a courtroom where judicial decisions are made. God's throne of grace for us is also a courtroom where judicial decisions are made. In 1 John 5:14, the Bible says this is the confidence we have before God that if we ask anything according to his will, how many say, will say this after me, according to his will? When we pray according to his will, the Bible says he hears us. Then it goes on to say, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. So it's vitally important that we find out the will of God. See, I've prayed about things before, and I didn't know for sure what God wanted to do in a situation until God spoke to me. And when God gave me revelation, I was like, okay, and that's how I began to pray along those lines. Because that's how he revealed to me what he wants to do. But this is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have it. So I'm going to give you a few things to think about. In these latter days, we know that the world is going to grow darker. And there are some that really don't understand end-time prophecy, and they're confused. And I guess they think the world isn't going to grow darker. I don't, anyway, but the world is going to grow darker, and we know that. But... At the same time, how do we pray? Because God is wanting where sin abounds, grace much more to abound. He's wanting that even though gross darkness is in the earth, that the glory arise upon his people. And here's how we determine what is God's will to pray in these last days. You ready? Number one, God said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Did y'all catch that? 
let that get in your spirit that that is so much the will of God that God made sure that it was etched in the scriptures. This isn't like something that he spoke to us and we think, oh, okay, well, you know, I feel, I feel that God wants to do this, so let's pray. It's not like that. This is something God made sure is in the Bible. Here we are in the latter days. What is God's will, his revealed will, that there's no way you can dispute this? What is God's will about the last days? I want to pour out my spirit on all flesh. So when you start praying that way, you're praying the will of God. Number two, the Bible says in Matthew 13, 39, the end of the age is the harvest. And the harvesters are the angels. In context, it's talking about separating wheat from tares and all that, but it's wanting to bring in the harvest, you see. So we know the end of the age is the harvest. And we know scripture after scripture, it's God's will that none perish. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest. We know that it is God's will that people be saved and the harvest come in. That's indisputable. There's no way that anybody could argue that point. So when we're praying in these last days, we know we're praying the will of God if we're praying for him to pour out his spirit and to bring in souls. Number three, the Bible gives us several scriptures, three of which I put here, that a bride is made ready to meet the Lord in the air. We know we're praying the will of God when we're praying, Lord, prepare a bride without spot or blemish to meet you in the air. And number four, we know from Ephesians 4.16 that God is wanting his fivefold ministry in place that the body is brought to maturity, unity, and every joint supply. We know that. These are scriptures that we know are the revealed will of God. So as we're praying, now why is this important? I'm going to get to this here in a moment, but I want you to see something here. I know I'm toward the end of the sermon, but I'm asking everybody to kind of give me your best ear at this latter part of this sermon. The prophet Daniel had been taken into exile, and the 70 years that they had been in exile, the prophet Daniel saw something. And here's what he said in Daniel uh, chapter 9 verse 1 through like uh, 6, but I'm just going to read one thing. Just look this way and give me your best ear. You can read this later. I just want you all to hear me. He said, in the first year of the reign of his reign, talking about the king, he said, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him in prayer and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So let me just look this way and give me your best here tonight. Y'all need to hear this. Daniel was in exile and he had the scroll of Jeremiah and he was looking through Jeremiah's writing. 
And he realized that Jeremiah prophesied that you're going to go into exile under Nebuchadnezzar and you would be in exile for 70 years. That's in our Bible, by the way. But Daniel was reading the scroll of, of Jeremiah and he realized, Lord, 70 years are up. It's time. He knew what the word of the Lord was, how he could pray the perfect will of God. He was praying scripture. And it was the fullness of time in his generation that Israel would be released from exile. That was God's will for that time. So Daniel began to pray and fast the will of God. And I'm going to read you his prayer because I want you to learn from it. The result of Daniel's prayers, remember I told you to remember um, the prayers of a righteous man make tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Remember that? The result of Daniel's prayer was this. God began to set things in motion so that King Cyrus would release back Ezra to take the children of Israel back. They rebuilt the second temple, and then Nehemiah came behind them, rebuilt the walls. But it all went back to Daniel's prayer as he prayed the will of God. Isn't that awesome? But this is kind of where we're at. I realize that this, these scriptures I'm going to read will reach their climax, if you will, during the tribulation time. I understand that. I understand it's referring to that. But we're already kind of seeing something here. You know, Daniel talked about in the last days that the enemy would try to wear out the saints. How many can kind of see that? There's something trying to wear people out. But I want you to see something here because the throne of grace is also a courtroom where decisions are made. Remember Luke 18, Jesus was teaching people and other teachings of Jesus. You know, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And he was given this parable about the persistent widow that kept going before a judge. And the judge didn't care, but he gave her her request just to get her out of his hair. He was annoyed with her. And Jesus was saying that you hear that. Don't give up. Keep going before the righteous judge. If an evil judge would give her her request because of her persistence, how much more so will your father give you your request and do so quickly? So there is something to this judicial aspect. I want you to see it. And I'm closing with this, but I don't want you to miss this because it's important because sometimes when you're dealing with the enemy, God needs to render a judgment in, on behalf of the righteous against the devil. So Revelation 13, 7, this is when it climaxes in the tribulation time. It was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Authority was given him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. The first three and a half years, the Christians will be martyred. The last three and a half years, two-thirds of the Jews will be. It was given unto him to make war, okay? Daniel 7, 25, talking about the Antichrist, he will speak out against the Most High, and oppress 
the saints of the Most High, intending even to change appointed times and laws, which speaks of like feast days and Sabbaths, etc., etc. And the saint, look at this, the saints were given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time, three and a half years. The saints were given into his hand. But I want you to see something. Daniel 7, 9. I know that that's dealing with the end times, it's dealing with the tribulation. But we're already starting to see these things starting to stir up and happen. As far as the great resistance, the great spiritual warfare, they're trying to wear out the saints, trying to oppress the saints of God. We're already seeing this. Um, you see what I'm saying? It's just going to reach its climax in the tribulation. But in Daniel 7, 9, it says, it says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up. I love this scripture. And the ancient of days took his seat. Where? On his throne. His garment was white as snow, his hair and his head like pure wool. This is speaking of Jesus that, by the way, John saw in the book of Revelation. His throne was ablaze with flames, like a flaming fire. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court convened. Everybody say the courtroom. The court convened and the books were opened. What are the books? I believe that this has to do with the will of God, the revealed will. You understand? There are things. How many knows that prophecy must be fulfilled? Satan may try to stop it, but it will be fulfilled. You see, let me give you a quick example of that. This is just one of many examples, but Satan is doing everything he can do to destroy the nation of Israel because Jesus is supposed to come back to that land, you see. He's doing everything he can do to take Jerusalem from the Jewish people because they have to have Jerusalem. You see, when Jesus comes, there has to be a nation of Israel, their capital will be Jerusalem, and there will be a second temple. I mean, a third temple, I'm sorry. There will be a temple. Satan's doing everything he he's can to try to stop that, but it won't happen. <laughs> End time prophecy will be fulfilled. The Ancient of Days will sit on his throne and open his books and see that these things must happen. And he will render judgment and it will push back the devil's agenda and those things still will happen no matter what the devil tries. In verse 11, it says, Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words which the horn, the Antichrist, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and his body was destroyed and given into the burning fire. And the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. Now, Daniel 7, 21. I kept looking and that the horn was waging war with the saints and prevailing against them. Remember, it talked about, I talked about in the tribulation time, it's going to reach its climax. The Christians will be martyred in the first three and a half, then two-thirds of the Jews in the second. But it says this, that the horn, the Antichrist, was waging war against the saints and prevailing against them until verse 22. What happened? The Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Most High. God rendered judgment on behalf of the righteous. 
And the time came where they took possession of the kingdom. You see, in heaven, our throne of grace, we go before God as a father. We go before his throne of grace and for, to find help in time of need and all of that. But you have to understand this same throne of grace is also the judgment seat. It's also like a courtroom. And this is where God can render judgment on behalf of the righteous. But what is Satan? How many of you guys are familiar with the courtroom? Satan is the accuser. He's the one that goes into the courtroom and tries to accuse us. And if he can find something, he, then he tries to set up attacks against us and resist us. In Revelation 12:10, though, in the latter days, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our, our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Look at this. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down the one who accuses them before God day and night. Do you remember how Satan appeared to God and how he accused Job? He said, does Job fear you for nothing? If you were to do this, that, and the other, Job would curse you to your face. And God allowed it for a reason. And in the end, God restored Job double. But God allowed it. But do you see there how Satan was accusing Job? So that's what the devil does. Heaven is, is not only a throne of grace, but it's also where decisions are made as far as judicial decisions. The accuser comes in and accuses. But God, hear me, people of God, please hear me. Why am I sharing this? Because the devil doesn't need to have all the voice in the courtroom. You see, whenever true intercessors that know how to pray cry out before God, what happens is the accuser's making his accusations against America and against Dallas and against your family. But here comes the intercessors. And the intercessors begin to cry out before God. God, would you hear based on your word, based on the blood, based on the fact you said, if the righteous cry out, God hears. If two agree on earth, you'll do it. And they begin to go before the courts. And you know what God will say? He'll say, shut up, Satan. I render judgment on behalf of the righteous. But when there's no righteous crying out, the devil gets away with a lot of things. See, that's what's concerning me in this nation. You've got, and I say it in love and with respect, but you've got so many places now that are so worldly and it's just about entertainment in a social club. It is no threat. See, those people land, okay, monopoly. Those people land on Satan's territory. He doesn't make them pay. He doesn't care. They're no threat. Since when has a social club been a threat to the devil? But whenever people of God that know how to pray, that live out Book of Acts Christianity, they know the power of God, and they're after souls. When those people land, land on territory, the devil is going to start trying to accuse them and do everything he can to resist them. He's going to try to set things up in the heavens. But how many knows when you've got a group of people that will be drawn by the Spirit together, that will know how to pray and harmonize before the throne of God, the accuser will be cast down and God will render judgment on behalf of the righteous and he'll part the heavens and he'll do what we're asking him to do. That's why I keep saying I know these things and that's why you've heard me say so much. In these latter days, we need people that know how to pray, to pray. 
There's a lot of places that they may say their little prayers, but you got to understand it's no real power or threat. They're joining hands and saying, dear God, save Uncle Charlie. Thank God for that. But that's kind of the end of it. We need people that know how to wage war. We need people that know how to come together. Let me try to paint a picture for a moment. God leads a group of people together. They begin to have high praise. The song begins to go up. People begin to dance. There's deep worship that it moves into. Powerful spirit-led intercession. The intercessors are praying in the spirit. They're led by God. It's the Holy Spirit praying through them. And there needs to be some kind of a leader there. But as somebody is leading and they're praying, they're being led by the Spirit. Everybody say led by the Spirit. They're being led by the Spirit. And because they're all in unity together, now tremendous power and authority is available. The ecclesia of God, the government of God is being displayed here, okay? We have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. So now you've got a group of people in unity. There's a symphony going up. There's a harmony. And led by the Spirit, they begin to pray, Lord, release your mighty angels into this region. We bind the spirit of Islam. It will not come into this place. We command Satan's kingdom. You're going to release that harvest of souls. And as they're led by the Spirit, what happens is, is God is honoring their prayers. And it shifts things because they know how to pray. They, let me say it again. They know how to pray. And their prayers have weight with God. Their prayers push back hell. Their prayers restrain principalities. Their prayers know how to release the will of God in the earth. Why is it that Jesus said, pray, your your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God needs people that know how to be led together by the Spirit. They know how to get out of their flesh and in the Holy Ghost, and they know how to worship and pray in the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit can orchestrate, and as the Spirit-led leader is up praying, it releases tremendous authority and power to drive hell back and release heaven in the earth. Those type of prayers will change. If people will get this, we don't need to just be hearers. We need to be doers of the Word. That type of praying right there, will be what breaks things open for regions and nations. So let me read this, and I want you just to hear Daniel's prayer. Pastor, how do we pray like that? You know, how how do we see something really change? Well, Daniel teaches us right here. Number one, he says in Daniel 1, verse 2, he said, I, Daniel, observed... In the scroll of Jeremiah, that we're only supposed to be here 70 years. So he saw the word of God, the will of God, excuse me, the will of God. And it says in verse three, so I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him. He knew how to humble himself in prayer and fasting. That right there. When we learn how to humble our body in fasting and our soul in prayer, that right there will move heaven. You hear me? And he said, oh, here's how he prayed. Oh, Lord. He began with praise and worship. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Now, listen. He began to vicariously repent on behalf of the nation, meaning 
He, he was a righteous man, but he was saying, Lord, we have sinned. There's something about saying, Lord, I come before you on behalf of America. Lord, we have sinned before you. We have done wrong, I'm reading it here, and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, and fathers, and the people of the land. In other words, we didn't heed the warnings. Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us is open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in countries to which you've driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, leaders, and fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God, but to you, O Lord our God, belongs compassion, forgiveness. So that, see, he's reminding the Lord here, Lord, you are a gracious God. You're a forgiving God. Lord, we've sinned before you, but, but yet you're a merciful God. And because we've rebelled against you and we've not obeyed your voice, to walk in your teachings you set before us through your sermons of prophets. Indeed, all of Israel, we've violated your law. We've not obeyed your voice. So the, cur the curse has gushed forth for us along the oath that you swore through Moses because we've sinned against you. So he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken to us and our, our rulers and who ruled us to bring on us disaster. For under the entire heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done in Jerusalem, just as is written under the law of Moses. All the disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord and turned from our wrongdoing to give attention to you. So the Lord has kept the disaster in store that he brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all of our deeds. But then he goes down to verse 15. Now here's where he turns it. He says, and now, O Lord, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt. In other words, remember your people. Lord, remember us in America. Lord, remember our forefathers that dedicated this land to you. Lord, remember the prayers of, of our ancestors in days gone by that, that the Quakers and the pilgrims and, and, and those that were in past moves of God that cried out for this land. Remember, Lord. He said, you brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself as is this day, but we've sinned and we've acted wickedly. Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts, now let your anger and your wrath turn away from your holy city, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and wrongdoings of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object, object of taunting to all those around us. But verse 17 but now, Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas. And for the sake of the Lord, your, for your sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary. My God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. But we are not presenting our pleas before you based on our merits. Our righteousness is as filthy wet rags, right? We're not basing this that we deserve this, but based on your great compassion. 
Lord, hear us. Forgive us. Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people who are called by your name. And then he says this in verse 20, while I was still praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people and presenting my plea before the Lord, he said, while I was still speaking in prayer, Gabriel showed up. Daniel knew how to pray. We need people again that knows how to pray. Daniel went before the Lord, and I'm going to paraphrase this for America. He went before the Lord and said, Lord, in America, Lord, remember the fathers that dedicated this nation. Remember the labors that went throughout this nation in times past that have prayed and seen great revivals. Lord, remember this land, but Lord, yet we've sinned against you. Lord, forgive us for our sins as a nation. We come before you. We humble ourselves and pray and seek your face. And as your people, we turn from our wicked ways. Forgive us, Lord. But we ask you to remember, Lord, this nation. And we ask you not based that we deserve it because we don't, but based on your great compassion and your mercy and your willingness to save souls. We ask you, Lord, that you would have mercy on this nation. And based on your holy word, just as it was 70 weeks in Daniel's time, we're living in the last days, Lord, and you said in your word, you want to pour out your spirit on all flesh, that you want the harvest to come in and a bride to be made ready to meet the Lord in the air. So we ask you, Lord, to pour out your spirit and bring in the harvest and get a bride ready. Lord, we pray this. We humble ourselves. We don't deserve it, but you are gracious and compassionate and full of mercy. That's how you pray. Amen? Daniel taught us. We vicariously repent. And I remember reading how Edward Miller in that Bible school, when the Holy Spirit fell so powerfully upon them, he said he didn't know people could cry that much Tears were like puddles around people's heads. But he said for months, the Holy Spirit fell on them day after day, and they were weeping and, out and crying out to God, saying, Lord, forgive us for our sins are so great here in Argentina. Forgive us, Lord. And eventually, once they got the breakthrough, God spoke to them and said, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has roared over Argentina. Amen. So that's how we pray. And so I believe if God will begin to draw people, people will yield to this, I pray that there are people out there. And listen, it may not happen in a lot of churches, I don't know, but I pray that there's people out there that God the Holy Spirit can draw them together. It may be few in number, but God can draw them together and they can have spirit-led prayers. The type of prayers is they vicariously repent for the sins of our nation, and they begin to get in deep intercession and groaning and travail, the type of praying that splits the heavens open and causes the harvest to come in. Amen? We have authority, but God is waiting on us to begin to yield to the Spirit and become prayer warriors like we need to be. And that will be what brings about great revival 
and a great harvest of souls. So, Lord, we thank you for hearing and answering the prayers over this sermon tonight. And everyone that's going to be watching or listening, Lord, I thank you for everything accomplished in and through this, that your, your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, I felt the Lord just stirring in this tonight. 